0: I'm sure it's not going to surprise any of you uh, this morning that I'm speaking on the subject of the resurrection. In fact, this is the third time this week that I've had the opportunity to talk about the resurrection story. The first time was on Thursday. I presented the story to about 35 or 44 and five-year-olds, and uh, it was a lot of fun. I I talked about his crucifixion, and then I pretended to be Jesus and laid down on the floor like I was dead, and then they all watched me come to life. And every boy and every little girl seemed to have no trouble believing that God had the power to raise Jesus, his son, from the dead. And the second time I presented the message of the resurrection this week was yesterday, at the Easter egg hunt outreach event. And the purpose of that event that we have was not just to have some fun egg and candy event for kids, but the real purpose of that was to uh, connect with the community and share the message of the gospel. And uh, I think we got a picture of that yesterday here. uh, There was about, I think, 400-plus who were gathered inside here yesterday and, uh, and we uh, got to go through the message of the gospel. So uh, it was a blessed day. Lots of children, uh, their parents and their grandparents getting to hear the gospel. One of my favorite uh, stories about uh, that Easter egg hunt outreach event is several years ago there was a single mom named Wendy. She and her three little children lived across the church in some apartments and so someone from the church invited her and so she came and brought her three little kids to that egg hunt and during the gospel presentation Wendy was listening and as she stood against the back wall leaning there every seat was taken and so all these adults were standing in the back of the church she stood back listening and she had memories of growing up in church and as she got a little bit older she began to drift away from her faith and made some bad choices, went through some tough times, but there with her three little kids as a single mom, she heard the gospel being presented to her kids, and the Holy Spirit convicted her of her sin, and she prayed silently to God and surrendered her life, and God saved her, and God changed her. She later married a man in the church, and... uh, and they began to raise their family in church and she became one of the strongest mission leaders in the congregation. That's what can happen through the power of the gospel at an egg egg hunt when people hear the message of good news. Paul said in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You know the verse? Why? He said, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Actually, I'd be fine presenting the same message I presented yesterday to the kids, but some of you probably have a little expectation that we do a little bit more. So with that said, I invite you to open your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to see this morning that uh, the fundamental claim of the Christian faith and message is the resurrection. That is the fundamental claim and message of our faith, that Christ is is risen everything about Christianity rests on the foundation that Jesus was raised from the dead and so if you have your Bible I'd like for you to keep your place here in first Corinthians 15 and for those of you who want to go go back with me over to uh, to the book of Acts to chapter 18 uh, Acts chapter 18 I'll give you a little Little history, a little background about the Corinthian church before we get in and to see what Paul says to them. So, a little background about the Corinthian church. Acts chapter 18. Luke records here in the 18th chapter of Acts that God assembles an amazing team of individuals. Uh, he brings them all together. God does it. There were four men and one woman. Those four men were Paul, Silas, Timothy, um, and another man Aquila and his wife Priscilla so four men one woman God brings them together as a team and they are living in the city of Corinth and these five people individual band together to engage Jews and gospels uh, and uh, and Greeks to anyone who will listen they want to engage with the gospel so their strategy and Nothing wrong with having an evangelism strategy individually. Do you have one? Have you ever thought about what your strategy is for sharing the gospel with people? Probably if you have no strategy, you'll probably never do it. They had a strategy, and their strategy was that they would witness to Jewish people by going into a place called a synagogue where Jews would gather. So that's where they would engage Jewish people. And then they would go to the marketplace to engage Greeks or Gentiles. And so that's what they did. They went into those places, engaged people in conversation, and began to steer the conversation towards the gospel. Uh, Last night I was going through Reed's grocery store and was down an aisle, was looking for some sauce, and this brother came by, he was older, and and he made eye contact with me, and I made eye contact with him, and his name was Mr. Hurd, and Mr. Hurd lives in Blue Mountain, and he knew Jeff... Pipkin, I didn't hold that against him. And he knew Jeff, and so I asked, got to talking to Mr. Hurd. Mindy was waiting in the car. I knew it was going to be a while, but I started, asked him if how he was doing. He had Parkinson's. He was shaking, had some tremors. And I said, tell me about your relationship with Christ. Do you know Jesus? He said, oh, I do. I'm Pentecostal. So I knew then he was probably pretty solid. So, uh, so, I'm just just an example. There's all kinds of examples for you and I to be to pause, to take a little time, to engage people in conversations, and to steer towards the gospel. Tell me about your faith. Do you know Jesus? If you died today, do you do you think that you would go to heaven? Why do you believe? And just people people uh, they don't want to talk to you. They won't want to talk to you. But a lot of people will. So. That's what you see in the book of Acts. These individuals are engaging people, and the response that they had was mixed. In Acts chapter 18, verse 6, it says there were some who opposed them and blasphemed, who were largely Jewish. And so there was some opposition. And then in verse 8, it says there was a Jewish man named Crispus, a ruler of the synagogue, who believed along with his entire household. And so they led this Jewish man to faith. And then later it says, and many of the Greeks, many of these Gentiles believed. And so the gospels of God unto salvation, people are coming to faith. And the, Luke records in chapter 18 that they heard the gospel, they believed the gospel and were baptized. They were saved and baptized. And then in verses nine and 10 of Luke chapter 18, I want you to look at those verses with me. God sends a message to encourage Paul. Look at verse 9 and 10. then the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. And he's encountering some opposition. Things are getting kind of heated. And so God encourages him and says, Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent. Boy, that'd be a good verse for us. Amen, Hillcrest? Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent. We have good news. And then he goes on, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. What an encouraging word. And then in verse 11, it says, as a result, Paul and his team stay there for 18 months ministering the word in the city of Corinth. God is working through them to plant and establish this Corinthian church, and so they're teaching and training and discipling people and developing leadership. And then in verse 18 of that same chapter, Paul leaves and eventually goes back to his home, his sending church in Antioch, and as was his custom, he would always report everything that God had done and then would rest. Then... After a time of rest, he sets out on his third mission trip and eventually passes through some cities and arrives at a city called Ephesus, and he's in Ephesus, this city, for two years. And while he is in Ephesus, Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians. He writes a letter. It's called, it's referred to as the unknown letter. We don't have that letter he writes a letter to the Corinthians, probably to check on them pastorally. And then those Corinthians write a letter back to the Apostle Paul. And in that letter, they address some issues, some problems that they were experiencing in the church. And by the way, one of the neat things when I read through the, the letters, the epistles of Paul to churches, it's always so encouraging to read about problems. Because if you think about it, every letter, and the New Testament was written to problems, churches, and so it just encourages me today. All right, writing to, and so they write and tell them about some problems, some things going on in the church. And so the letter that we're going to read this text from is Paul's response back to them, addressing all of the issues they were having in their church. Let me give you some of those, some of those issues. There was. He says there was division and strife in the church. Some people weren't getting along, backbiting, saying things about each other, division. And it says many members of the church never were maturing in Christ. They didn't grow up. And Paul said they were still acting like babies, childish, spiritually in the faith. There were other members of the church who were engaged in sexually immoral lifestyles, practicing those kinds of things actually in the church. Other members in the church were filing lawsuits against one another, taking each other, church members, taking each other to court. There was issues of, regarding marriage and divorce and remarriage. They were having issues with that. There was difficulty surrounding the Lord's Supper. Some of the people, when they were gathering together to take the Lord's Supper, were getting drunk. They were intoxicated, taking the Lord's Supper, and then some of the members of the church wouldn't take the Lord's Supper with other members. Paul addresses that. And then there were abuses regarding the law and certain people were judging other people, looking down on other people because they wouldn't eat certain kinds of foods and and their corporate worship was divisive and certain members were flaunting themselves publicly, drawing attention through the exaltation of certain spiritual gifts. And so all of that was going on in the Corinthian church. And so Paul addresses it. And perhaps the worst problem of all is where we'll focus this morning. There were all kinds of faulty notions and opinions floating around in the church regarding the resurrection. Lots of confusing questions like, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And can you be a Christian and believe in Jesus but not believe in the resurrection? And if we die, when we die, Will we too be raised? And if we're going to be raised, will our resurrected bodies be spiritual bodies or we will, will we have physical bodies? All of these questions about the resurrection. And so to clear up the confusion, Paul writes this letter, addresses each issue. And here in the 15th chapter that we're going to read, he draws them back to the gospel. It's a prescription for every issue that ails the church. The gospel. And so read with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at the first verse. And then we'll get to the main text in just a moment. He takes them back to the gospel. Verse 1, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand. By which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul's message was constant to the church. I verse one. I, brethren, continue to declare to you the gospel. Notice he said there at the verse was not declared, but I declare. Not past tense, but active, continuous, continually taking them back to this message, this message that God's power works through, and said so I declared it in the past, and I'm declaring it again over and over because it is the foundation and the heart of who we are as God's people and the foundation of everything we do. Everything in Christianity and about our ministry rises and falls upon this single message of the gospel. Hillcrest, let's be clear. Let's, as a church family, remember the gospel. Uh, I especially just look forward each time we do this when we take the Lord's Supper together. Is it just God's way of reminding us to remember as often as you do this to remember the gospel? Do you, do you think it's possible for a church to drift from the gospel? There certainly is. Someone, um, a few weeks ago, I hadn't heard of this and told Mindy and I about, there was a, a thing on Netflix about the, the American church and the gospel and we watched that. It was a powerful reminder of the importance of, of local churches staying focused on the gospel. Remembering the gospel and repeating it over. It's one of the keys to an healthy church. So what is the gospel? We'll look at verses three and four. Paul said, I preached it in the past and you heard it and believed it and were saved by it and are standing upon it or you're holding it fast. Verse three, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He died for our sins. He was buried and rose again. Then in verses 5, he lists the eyewitnesses. Peter saw the risen Christ, then the 12, then 500 believers, then James and the apostles, and finally Paul And the Bible says that all of them were eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. All of them saw Jesus alive. They saw him die. They physically witnessed his crucifixion, his death, understood that he was buried, and they all saw him alive. How would you explain the historical facts That all of the apostles, all of them died because of their commitment to the gospel. All of those 12 apostles were willing to suffer and die. If they had any doubts about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I can assure you they would not have been martyred. What's the significance of the resurrection for you and for me? Read with me starting in verse 12, 1 Corinthians. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have fallen perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most to be pitied. So what is the resurrection, what's the significance of the resurrection for you and I? Over the last several weeks, I had to hire an attorney and I've been working with an attorney dealing with a personal matter, and I've noticed that the documents that are being prepared and that are written up are very precise. They're very thorough and logical. Nothing is assumed in those legal documents. Everything is spelled out in detail. Likewise, the Apostle Paul came from a legal background, and the Holy Spirit leads him to write a thorough, organized, and logical presentation regarding the resurrection. The Christian church and all its diversity of slave and poor and rich and free and male and female and Jew and Gentile, all different backgrounds, all different cultural ideas and diversity. As they gather together, they begin to develop different kinds of opinions about the reality of the resurrection, leaving them in a confused state. And so notice in verse 12, Paul addressing their confusion about this matter, he raises a question. How do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And also, if you'll jump down in the same chapter, look at verse 35. He raises, addresses another issue, another question, because they say, well, how are the dead raised and with what kind of bodies do they have? And so with all of that and all this confusion, the first thing... That Paul does is he challenges their denial. Look at verse 13. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. His legal logic begins to kick in. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then consider these four conclusions. Number one, if Christ is not raised, verse 14 says, then our faith Is futile. If Christ is not raised from the dead, that means that the message that we preach, the message that we believe, is empty. And all preachers are liars. And all of us who proclaim the gospel, all of us who try to herald the gospel and share the gospel are liars too. That's what he's saying. Practically, then, our entire message is futile. Our faith is fiction. It's all made up. If Christ is not risen, then the message of the gospel is an imaginary tale, something concocted just to make us feel better, to give us something to believe in, providing us with purpose. I was listening to a lecture by Kitchens recently on YouTube. Basically, that's what he says about you Christians. He says, You just made it all up to make yourselves feel better. Paul says, If Christ is not risen, our faith is futile. And if that's the case, then none of us should ever tell anyone else about Jesus the rest of our lives. And further, we should just close the doors of our churches if Christ is not risen. Second, he says, If Christ is not risen in verse 17, then it gets worse. All of us are still in our sins. If Jesus died, and you and I believe that he did, and if he died as the perfect, sinless sacrifice for our sins, dying a substitutionary death, which means dying as our substitute, dying in our place with his death, satisfying the holy wrath of God, If Jesus suffered and died on a cross, going through all of that agony as a substitution for you and for me, but then did not rise from the dead, then he was nothing more than a victim, a victim of sinful men. Therefore, his death without the resurrection would send the message to us that there is no hope for us when we die. We would just die in our sins. Would you let that thought sink in for a moment? If there was no resurrection, then we're a pitiful people, and if there is no resurrection, when we die, we just die in our sins. That means when we gather for funeral services and we gather for graveside with our loved ones, if Christ has not been raised, then we have no message. We would just tell stories about their life, reflect on their life a little bit with nothing more, with no hope of anything beyond the grave. And our grief would be no different than those without Christ. We would grieve without any comfort. So if there's no resurrection, our faith is futile. We just die in our sins. Third in verse 18, if Christ has not been raised, then everyone who dies is lost. They're just lost. There's no difference between our death and that of anyone else. I've preached a message a couple of times over the years entitled Christians Die Differently. Christians Die Differently. And I have been with families, um, I guess somewhere between 25 to 30 to 35 times I've been in, with families in their homes or in ICU rooms or hospital rooms when their loved one drew their last breath. I've watched them die. Been with people. Was with my dad when he died. Some of you have had that experience. I've also been with individuals who died when you weren't sure that they had any relationship with Christ at all. I want to tell you there is a difference there is a difference in the way people die because of the hope of the gospel and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit when a Christian dies who knows Jesus and who's walked with Jesus and lived for Jesus I want to tell you there is a peace there is a peace that will permeate that room And there is also for the person who doesn't know Christ, I've seen it, there is a fear and an anxiety and a restlessness when that person who's never demonstrated any kind of commitment to Christ, any kind of faith, there is a difference when they die. Christians die differently. There is a courage. There is a confidence that God provides in death because we know what? That Jesus has conquered that last enemy for us. He has conquered death for us. That's what he meant when he said, oh, death, where is there victory? Grave, where is, there, where is thy sting? It's Why? It's all been conquered. It's The last enemy, death, has been conquered for us because of Christ Jesus. And finally, if Christ has not been raised, verse 19, we're a pitiful people. Church people, gospel people, we're a pitiful lot. We're to be pitied. People should feel sorry for us. But in fact, Paul knew that indeed Christ was raised. So did the other apostles. Those 12 apostles witnessed his crucifixion. They watched him die. And then think about what did that effect have upon them? All 12 of those apostles, when they saw Jesus die, when they knew that he was dead, they, as you read the, the gospel accounts, you find them, they were depressed, they were disillusioned, they were defeated, they were even fearful. The Bible says they were fearful that they might be arrested next, that they might be executed next. They're hiding out full of fear. You remember Peter? Peter actually denied even knowing Jesus. In front of a small servant girl, he denies Jesus. Later, he resigns from following Christ. He threw in the towel. Why? Because he thought Jesus was dead. He returned to his home, went back to his family, resumed his his trade, went back to fishing. He believed in Jesus, and then he saw him die. What about Thomas? Thomas didn't believe when Jesus appeared to the other 12 and Thomas wasn't there. Do you remember what he said? He said, there's no way that I believe that Jesus is risen. There's nothing you can say to convince me unless I see him and see his hands and the prints of those nail scars and unless I can put my finger into the print of those nails and unless I can put my hand into his side, I would never believe. Peter, Thomas, all of them were the same. And yet all 12 of these men moved from denial and doubt to conviction and confidence. They were certain unto death. It is a historical fact that all 12 apostles were martyred. Why the change? How do you explain the change? Historically, Jesus was real. These disciples were real. They believed in Jesus. They followed in Jesus. His teachings are real. They saw him crucified. They saw him die. They all were depressed and defeated and discouraged. And yet, then there's a change. All of them are willing to die, to be martyred for their faith. According to history, Peter was martyred in AD 64 during the reign of Nero when he was persecuting Christians. And it's believed that he was sentenced to be crucified and Peter did not feel worthy to be crucified like his Lord and requested to be crucified upside down. Thomas, martyred, known as the doubter, was a f- believed he was the first to take the gospel to Mylapura, which was today would be India, and he was martyred with spears. The Apostle Paul, also in A.D. 64, under the Nero, during the persecution of Christians, it was believed that he was publicly beheaded for his faith, for his confidence that he, Christ was alive. You see, each one of these men, when pressed into positions of denying Jesus or dying, their faith held fast. How do you explain that? Except that they saw the Lord Jesus Christ alive. Watched him die. Watched him buried in a tomb. And saw him raised. They saw a dead man come back from the grave and knew Jesus had defeated sin and death. And their hope was in Christ. Therefore, in verse twenty, Paul says boldly to the Corinthians, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Look at look at this text. Read verses twenty one and twenty-three with me. Starting verse twenty. But now Christ is risen from the dead, has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse twenty-one. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. What does that mean? Well, Paul says, yes, Christ is risen. And this risen Christ has become firstfruits. Firstfruits. Look at verse 21. Adam's disobedience caused sin, caused sin to enter into the human race, into the human equation, and that sin spread to all men. And the result of that having spread infecting all of us then means all of us die. Physical death is a consequence of Adam's sin. And you remember in Genesis 2:17, you remember what God told Adam? He said in the day that you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely what? Die. Through one man's sin sin entered the human equation and spread to all men, and because all of us are sinners born with a sinful nature, then all die. That doesn't sound like such good news, does it? In Adam, all been made sinners, all die, but God, but God, because of Christ Jesus and his resurrection, overcame death, and we also who believe in Jesus, who love him and serve him and keep his commandments, verse 22, it says, shall be made alive. And by the way, multiple times, the apostle Paul refers to the death of a Christian as sleep, sleep is just, it's just temporary for the believer. I want you to notice and compare verse 20 and verse 23. Verse 20, the Lord Jesus Christ is risen and is firstfruits of those who sleep, of those who die. And verse 23, because Christ is firstfruits, then each one in his or her then order. Paul is drawing from a doctrine in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus known as First Fruits. It was one of the feasts of God's people that they were to keep annually the Feast of First Fruits. Let me read to you from Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 through 11. And the Lord said to Moses, tell the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I shall give you and reap its harvest... When you reap the harvest, you shall then bring a sheaf of first fruits from the harvest to the priest, and he shall wave those first fruits before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. First fruits. Paul is drawing from this doctrine. And the idea is upon Jesus' resurrection and his new resurrected body, his new state, he was lifted up as a picture of what's to come for you and for me. In other words, Christ's resurrection is the first resurrection leading to future resurrections that will follow, the beginning of something far greater, something bigger and larger. You and I can be assured of being raised From sleep when we die. The fruit following the first fruit because of Christ's resurrection. You've heard that old saying, I'm sure that you are not prepared to live unless you're first prepared to die. Are you prepared to die this morning? Death is the result of sin and your death and my death are certain unless the Lord Jesus comes back. Before we die, all of us in this place are going to die. <laughs> Hebrews 9:27 says it's an appointment that all of us will keep. It's appointed unto men to die and then to face the judgment. But the good news is Christ died on the cross for our sins to be forgiven to provide us with a right standing with God that we would be blessed in living for Him and serving Him. The world, this culture, more all the time, will propagate the lie. It's the enemy's lie that if you want to be blessed in this life, then choose to live your life on your own. Disobey God. Disregard who God is. Disregard as your creator. Disregard his commandments. If you want to be blessed and live the good life, then live according to your own drumbeat. Live according to your own rhythm. Make your own choices. You decide what's best for you. That's the lie of the culture. It's the lie of the enemy. And in so doing, you'll be fulfilled. You'll be satisfied. That was a lie In the Garden of Eden, the enemy has been propagating that lie ever since. Adam, Eve, if you want to be happy, then eat. The reason God doesn't want you to do that is because your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. You'll be happy. You'll be satisfied. You'll be fulfilled. You'll live the good life. And it's been the same lie that's propagated over and over and over again. The reality, it will destroy you. I was talking to a brother here yesterday, and uh, we were talking about as men um, trying to live for Christ, and most of us men never had anybody model for us as a man what it meant to to be a godly man and to live a godly life, and prayer wasn't modeled for us and Bible reading was never modeled for us and praying with our families was never modeled for us and so we, we believe the lie as men in this culture if you want to be a man a masculine man then get you some guns and fishing rods and drink and party and get a truck and live a sexually immoral life and that's the way to be a man that's what will make you fulfilled that's what will make you happy You could say the same thing, just kind of change some of the imagery for women would be the same thing. That's the enemy's lie. That's the culture's lie. And masses of people are lining up with that. But God. But God in his mercy. Mercy withholds, grace extends. God in his mercy withholds his wrath and extends his goodness and his faithfulness through his grace. And offers this truth to us. That Christ died for our sins. I hope that never gets old for us as a church. To hear that Christ died for my sins. He died for my sins in the past. He died for whatever sins I'll commit today. And Christ Death was sufficient for any sin that I commit in the future. Christ has died for our sins and died and was buried. And through that sacrifice, you and I, through faith in him, can be free. Our sins can be wiped clean, cleansed if we confess our sins. God is faithful and just. Just, he has the right to forgive us. Why does God have the right to forgive you and I of our sins? Because Christ sacrificed for us. Christ took the punishment for my sins and your sins that we deserved on the cross. He absorbed our sins. We're thinking about this on Good Friday For the first time in Christ's life, when he died on the cross and he absorbed those sins, when our sins were imputed to him and his right, when when that occurred, there was for the first time in his eternal life that he and the Father, the fellowship was broken. Why? Because he absorbed our sins on the cross forgiveness is available to you this morning and to me no matter what you've done, how bad choices you've made, how maybe what, no matter what it is, Christ can forgive you of your sins and will forgive you and was raised from the dead not only that we have forgiveness but that we have new life. A new life. The blessed life. Not the life the culture deceives us with but real life and being Blessed and in fellowship with God. This morning, how will you respond? How have you responded to God's message, to God's message of good news and his offer of forgiveness and life? What will you choose? I would urge you this morning to come to Christ. We're going to offer a time of response in just a moment. In fact, I'm gonna ask Don, the musicians, to come. And I would say to you, that's what worship really is. Our worship of God really is a response. We respond to God. That's worship. And so during this time of response, however you might be here, God speaking to you, the only wrong response is a no response. A wrong response would be the response that's concerned about what someone else thinks. And the only thing that really matters is what God knows. And so as the Holy Spirit draws you, if today if God is saying you're mine and God is drawing you to Christ, then by coming you are saying, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I believe the gospel. I believe that Christ died for my sins on a cross and was raised from the dead that I might have new life. And so I want to invite you to come to Christ this morning. Let this be a day of salvation for you and for you. The Bible says in Hebrews, do not harden your hearts as in times of rebellion, but today would be a day of salvation. If you never, never surrendered your life to Christ, put your faith in him, today would be a day to do that. I'll meet you here and share with you. For others... Of you this morning, the time of response may be for you to rededicate your life. I'm sure in a crowd this size that there are some of you who, like so many you you made some kind of decision at an early age, like Wendy that I described earlier. maybe you believed in Christ years and years ago, but you've gone drawn into the culture and made a lot of bad choices and a lot of bad decisions and you're not really living for Christ and this might be a day of rededication for you. You come back to your first love and say, Father, I've sinned against you. I'm recommitting my life to you, resurrendering, offering it to you. For others, this time of response might be for you to, to follow Christ in baptism, to join this church time of response may be for you to come and pray for a lost person however God might speak to you and lead you today urge you to respond in faith to Christ let's pray